With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. FSN Radio. It's all about what's next. Go to FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com and sign up for your free weekly newsletter. You'll also get three free reports. The Financial Survival Network. It's all about what's next. Welcome. You are listening to the Financial Survival Network. It's Kerry Lutz and just back from the New Orleans Investment Conference. Really had a great time. Saw Mickey Fulp there, Dan Amaduri, Rick Rule. There were so many people there. It's the first one I'd been to, and it's going to be on my regular list of conferences. But now it's back to the real world, back to sunny South Florida. Uh, I was in Buffalo. Winter is coming there with a vengeance, so good place for me to stay away from. If you like snow and the lake effect and lots of cold, chilly weather, damp, chilly weather, well, Buffalo is a place that you really should investigate further. And what we're investigating today is how can the U.S. raise rates when everyone else is cutting them, which is the title of John Rabino's article in uh, your site, John, dollarcollapse.com. And sorry I missed you last week, but we're back. Hey, Kerry. Well, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So, yeah. So you got a long uh, article about this. Uh, pretty, pretty extensive, which there, it's a conundrum, right? Uh, yeah, how does well, the Fed raise rates? Outside the U.S., there, there's pretty much a global slowdown going on. And um, most of the world's central banks are reacting predictably to that by increasing their QE programs or cutting interest rates or messing around with bank reserve requirements or, you know, generally doing things that uh, central banks do when their economies are slowing down. And uh, just, you know, among the, the highlights is Sweden is uh, expanding its QE program and they're, they're um, really going full bore into the war on cash. They're making ATMs disappear around the country <clears throat> and, uh, and just generally um, setting the stage for um, all electronic payments in the not too distant future. And uh, in, in the Eurozone, um, the, the ECB basically promised um, stepped up QE in the coming year. Um, Japan's retail sales just fell off the table. And now there's pressure on the, the Japanese central bank to increase QE, although they're, they're waffling, but they're, they're going to have a cave. That's the consensus anyhow. And then China is cutting interest rates because they're slowing down. So how's the U.S. going to raise rates in that kind of an environment? And what will that do to the, the relationships between the dollar and the other currencies and, and U.S. exports versus other exporters? And, uh, the, it, it probably can't be a good thing, you know, because uh, the dollar is already very strong and, and most U.S. corporations, when they report earnings now, are saying, well, it was a little disappointing, mostly because the strong dollar um, limited our profit growth abroad. You know, the, you're seeing that over and over again in the uh, corporate reports. And so for the U.S. to raise rates, which would, in theory, push up the dollar, because that's usually how that relationship works, that means corporate earnings will be held back commensurately. And so we've already got a, a profit recession going on in the U.S., which is uh, a, a long stretch of falling corporate earnings. 
So if we're going to take policy steps to make corporate earnings go down further and faster than they are now, what does that do to the equity markets? Because um, underlying the price of equities is the earnings of the companies that uh, that issue stocks. You know, in other words, we're, when you buy a stock, you're buying a share of the future earnings of a company. And if that company's earnings are going down, then the value of those shares are presumably worth less. So that would uh, that would possibly set off a bear market in the U.S., which we can't handle. You know, we're so leveraged, so financially fragile that uh, if we had a garden variety 20 percent drop in stocks, that might destabilize the whole economy. And, and, you know, the guys in charge know that. And so they're always intervening whenever the stock market goes down. You know, let the stock market drop by five or 10 percent in the U.S. And you have this whole army of Fed talking heads coming out promising the moon monetarily um, to stop the market from dropping any further. And it's worked up to now. But if we start raising interest rates when the rest of the world is going in the other direction, that, that means we're losing the currency war big time because our currency is going up, which hurts our economy, blah, blah, blah. So it, it's hard to picture us doing it. And it's hard to picture it working if we do do it. So we'll see in December. You know, the, the last Fed meeting, they uh, they didn't raise interest rates, but they promised that this time for sure, yeah. they guarantee almost yeah. um, an increase in December. So we're, we're um, rapidly approaching a really interesting decision point for the U.S., and it's one that I think they don't really have a handle on in the sense that they that they know what the results of their decisions will be. They're kind of flying blind up to now, which is why they seem to be dithering so much. And nothing is going to change between now and mid-December. So at that point, they're still going to be facing extreme uncertainty and they're still going to have to make a decision. And either decision carries with it some very severe risks. So it's uh, it's basically what you expect when you borrow too much money. But still, <laughs> you know, it's a crazy yeah. time to be uh, having to make these decisions. And it's, it's an interesting time to watch the process from the outside, from the safe distance of, you know, owning precious metals and, and mostly being short stocks. Yeah. So they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. What is a uh, central banker to do here, John? Yeah. Well, once you reach this point, when, when your society is this highly leveraged, there really are no good solutions because anything you do is still going to be in the context of an overwhelming amount of debt that you can't handle and that you have to get rid of somehow. And the only way to get rid of it is via some really painful processes. So your choice is which painful process, and that's all you've got left, you know, and that's not politically attractive. You know, it's not a fun thing to preside over um, when you consign your society to three years or five years or 10 years of extreme pain while you work off the, um, the the results of past policy mistakes. So our guys who are in charge now are paying the price for the bad decisions of Ronald Reagan going all the way back and Bill Clinton and Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke and George W. Bush. You know, all, all of these guys made policy mistakes that led to increasing amounts of debt in the system, which are now coming home to roost. And so the guys who have to make decisions today find themselves constrained by this overwhelming amount of debt um, to just a few choices, none of which are attractive. So it's, uh, you know, it's a tough few years, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a real bad, bad uh, situation that, uh, that they find themselves in. And we're the ones that are going to pay the price for this, right, John? Yeah, well, regular people are always the ones who suffer for policy mistakes at the top. And whether it's economic or geopolitical, it's always the working class folks who end up um, paying the biggest price for it. And, uh, you know, what's happening now financially is 
terrifying. You know, these numbers have never been this high before as far as total global debt and uh, derivatives books and unfunded liabilities. All the things that could lead to a crisis are um, more extreme than they've ever been before. So even in a peaceful world, we would have some kind of financial crisis out there. But we've got geopolitical turmoil bubbling up at the same time that uh, the, the financial side of things is coming to a head. So um, that makes it doubly scary. You know, just this last week, since you and I talked last, uh, the U.S., after months and months and months of promising no boots on the ground in, in yeah. Syria or anywhere else in the Middle East, you know, that we're pulling people out and and letting the societies there work out their own differences. Well, we changed our mind now. We're, we're putting special forces soldiers into Syria to, quote unquote, advise the, uh, the rebel groups. But these are the same rebel groups that Russia is bombing. Mm -hmm. So now we've got the, uh, the prospect of our people being killed by Russian fighter planes. Yeah. And Great. so who knows where that leads? And, and at the same time that's going on, um, we've got a confrontation with China in the South China Sea where they're claiming um, um, greater distances for themselves around these little islands that they've claimed and that they're building in the South China Sea. And we're sending battleships um, near those islands to enforce international norms as far as, um, you know, how much you own of the sea around your territory. And so we've got our ships going by these islands, their ships shadowing our ships and their people threatening dire consequences and our people saying, go ahead, you know, make our day over there. And, and uh, you know, one little mistake on the part of a battleship captain or a fighter plane pilot um, could lead to a, a very, very serious incident over there just because we've got our guys so close and uh, and everybody's making decisions in the spur of the moment under extreme pressure. So that's a scary situation, too. You know, and, and, and then you've got the European um, um, refugee problem where hundreds of thousands of Syrians and other Middle Easterners are flooding into Europe. You know, the kids are, are drowning on the way and their bodies are washing up and and European countries are building fences between other themselves and other European countries where uh, the Eurozone and the EU um, have up until now enforced free trade and free movement of people across these borders. Well, now they're, they're back to building fences again because they're so terrified of the effects of 300,000 Muslims showing up in their country. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, what you do with them once they're there and, and all of that. And so nobody really knows what to do about the... Uh, the, the migrants in Europe now, and they're still coming, you know, uh, the, October was the biggest month ever for immigration, you know, for people showing up uh, out of their, you know, leaving their country and showing up in Europe. And it's increasing, especially as winter is coming now, because now um, homeless people are being caught out in the cold and they're looking for some kind of relief. So they're going to Europe where they hope they, they will find relief. And, and uh, right now they're not, you know, they've got these. They're not getting a real welcome, are they? Well, um, no, because there are so many of them. Mm -hmm. And that's terrifying to Europeans. You know, that, that would be the equivalent of millions of people showing up at our borders and, uh, and us having to figure out what to do with it. And we wouldn't handle it 
all that much better than Europe is, I don't think. Um, and um, one thing that's happening in the European countries now is that elections approach. You're seeing people um, on the fringes become viable candidates. You know, the uh, the British Labour Party just named uh, an unreconstructed Trump. Marxist as yeah. uh, their party head. Yeah. And in France, um, the, the National Front which used to be a neo-Nazi party and now is just far right, um, and they're very anti-immigrant and anti-Euro, is, is doing very well in regional elections. Uh, and so you're seeing stuff like that across Europe where parties that would be very disruptive, oh, and in, in Portugal, that's right, the, uh, the left won a parliamentary majority just now, and they're anti-austerity. But the president of the country who has to sign off on that party forming a coalition government which they've earned the right to do, I said, no, you can't do that. So he's, really? he's keeping the, um, the democratically elected people out of power in Portugal. And uh, th there doesn't seem to be an end in sight for that process either, because they're going to have another election probably pretty soon. And the same guys will probably win. So they've got a constitutional crisis going. So you, you're seeing turmoil all around the world for either financial or geopolitical reasons. And in a lot of cases, those two things are combining which is the way it tends to happen when you have a, 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 an over-leveraged society. You know, as debt builds up, you have financial crises, which lead governments to look abroad for enemies to distract their people from their own mismanagement. And so you get a higher number of geopolitical crises and actual wars in times of financial crisis. Uh, and so we're, we're seeing it play out according to the textbook right now, except on a bigger scale. You know, we've never done things that have been global before. Even the world wars were not as wide ranging as what we're seeing now. And uh, it only looks like it's going to expand from here because debt continues to accumulate. You know, we took on $57 trillion of new debt since 2008, 2009, and it's not slowing down. Everybody in the world is still borrowing money. And um, all the big banks are still increasing their derivatives books and their leverage, despite um, new capital rules that um, that will be in place pretty soon that in theory are forcing them to scale back their leverage. But, you know, we're not seeing it in the numbers yet. So there, there really doesn't seem to be an end in sight here um, as these current trends continue. But the market's going to impose some kind of an end at some point just because the numbers are overwhelming right now. You know, you can't um, look at any national balance sheet, any major national balance sheet right now and compare it to historical norms without being terrified because everybody owes way more money than they ever did before. Yeah. And, you know, in the U.S., if you include um, unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicare in our total national debt, mm -hmm. um, you get something like a million dollars per family of four liability in the U.S. And obviously that's un yeah. unmanageable. That's and crazy. We can't pay it, so we won't pay it. But the question is, how are we not going to pay it? Are we going to default on all our loans or are we going to inflate away our currency and, you know, minimize the loans that way? And, and then who knows what happens? Because that either one of those things usually brings incredible instability. And uh, those seem to be our only choices. So, yeah, scary time, Kerry. Really scary. And uh, you've written numerous times uh, about different instances is the U.S. ungovernable. And then it's looking like the world is ungovernable, John. <laughs> and more and yeah, more. When you borrow too much money, the political system stops working because basically the, the way a system gets over indebted is um, usually governments buying votes 
by either borrowing money and spending it on their constituents or by encouraging the private sector to leverage up. Okay, so so that's the process of accumulating a lot of debt. And when that process reaches its natural conclusion, you know, when you've got so much debt that you just can't manage it anymore, you've got a generation of politicians who aren't used to saying no. They've been saying yes for their entire careers, cutting deals, giving people what they want, getting elected that way, and, and you know, and pretending to be really um, generous yeah. <laughs> and compassionate yeah. when really they're spending other people's money or encouraging people to go into debt. And, uh, and so these guys are completely unsuited for the process of deleveraging because you have to say no in order to deleverage. And so you, you have this immovable force meeting, you know, this um, unstoppable process and mm -hmm. you, you get chaos at that point politically. So what, what's happening around the world is that every election is a potential crisis because every election brings with it um, a lot of angry people who want to throw the bums out and replace them with outsiders who don't New have bums. all this baggage. And, you know, of course, outsiders come in and then they can't solve any of these problems because they're insoluble. You know, you can't fix these problems without incredible amounts of pain. And so whoever gets elected um, loses their popularity within a few months and then gets kicked out again. And, and so you see this repeating all over the world. And so these countries can't come up with any kind of coherent policies that are the same from one year to the next. Um, and in the U.S., um, we've been spared the worst of that because the dollar is the world's reserve currency and that's insulated us from the chaos to an extent, but it won't for much longer. And so you're seeing it bubble up now where, where Bernie Sanders is very popular in the Democrat Party. And um, that wouldn't have been the case on a national level in the past because he's, he's a socialist. And uh, the idea of massively increasing government spending and raising taxes across the board never really played very well um, on a national stage. You know, you had to run to the middle in order to get elected. But um, in, in his case, he's putting up some serious numbers without running to the middle at all. And then in the Republican primary, it's just chaos. You know, you've got Donald Trump still leading in the polls in most places. And where he's not, it's um, it's Carson. Uh, ben Carson. Yeah. Who's um, a surgeon, you know, total yeah. outsider, never been part of the political process before. So you're seeing stuff like that in the U.S., but in other countries, it's much further along because you're seeing actual political parties of the um, extremes end up either gaining power or vying for power and forcing the uh, the people in charge to accommodate their views. So, yeah, um, you know, it, it is happening the way you would expect it to happen. And it's accelerating. And the end point is chaos. Because once these guys start getting elected, you know, put National Front in charge of France and let the, um, the, the coalition that includes the communists mm -hmm. take power in Portugal and let the, the Marxist-led Labor Party take power in Britain. And you have a really interesting mix there of countries that are not going to get along, except that they will agree on, um, on doing away with a lot of the integration that has happened in Europe in the last couple of decades. You know, they're, they'll pull out of the Eurozone, they'll um, weaken the EU, they'll put up barriers between countries again. And um, I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a bad thing in the long run, but it will be chaotic in the short run. Mm -hmm. You know, if the Eurozone starts to spin apart, what does that, that mean for the Euro? Who knows? And all the equities that, uh, that are now really well-priced, you know, price for perfection in the Eurozone and all yeah. the um, European bonds sure. that are trading at negative interest rates. You know, would you own an Italian bond yielding negative 0.5% if they were going to go back to the lira? I don't think Probably so. Probably not. Yeah. I think not. 
I think not. And yeah, it's it's just uh, becoming a cascading effect where one failure is climbing on the backs of another failure, and and there's no happy happy medium because there's no out for this other than to get rid of the debt, and nobody wants to address how you're going to get rid of the debt. That's the only thing that can solve this situation is maybe it's Jim Rickards. We saw him at uh, at the New Orleans Investment Conference, and you know his thing is the SDR, China, gold, and I don't know. I just think that to revalue all currencies against gold, then you would have to make a commitment to keep their value constant against gold. And what central banker is going to do that? Yeah. Um, well, somebody has to do it or the market will do it, but of course nobody wants to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. You, uh, you end up with all these people, like I said, who have never had to make hard choices. And either they make the hard choices or people get elected who are very happy to make the hard choices because they're coming from the outside and they're not wedded to the uh, status quo. So I don't know, Carrie. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's going to be a fascinating time. And, and meanwhile, every time one of these central banks announces that, um, that they're going to cut interest rates or that they're going to ramp up QE, the financial markets respond positively. Yeah. You know, U.S. stocks just rocked in the last month. We had a really good month in October for U.S. Yeah. stocks uh, because the um, the Fed decided not to raise interest rates in the short run. And that's also creating the conditions for a crisis because you've got everything priced for perfection. At the same time, we're heading into a very imperfect period. So, yeah, um, I, I think that the coming year, and this is Martin Armstrong's thesis, and I, I you know, tend to agree with that part of it, that, uh, that, that we're heading into a time in which government is a bubble that is about to burst. In other words, our trust in government is the reason that the financial markets have been able to behave so well in the last few years. We expect government to save us from our own folly, and we think or we choose to believe that government has the power and the legitimacy to make good on all its promises. So when we find out that that's not the case, that these central banks can't actually control every single market all around the world, and that um, rising government spending just doesn't produce growth after a certain point if the money has to be borrowed in order to spend. And and, and then we find out that the governments have no tools left beyond these tools that are no longer working, then uh, that's when things start to spin out of control. And that's when we get these throw the bomb out elections and we get uh, wide variations around the world in monetary and fiscal policy. And, and uh, the markets have to react to that uncertainty because in, in general, especially equity investors, but also bonds don't, don't like uncertainty. You know, if you're going to commit money for a long period of time, you want to have a sense that the world is going to be pretty much the way you expect it to be five years out or 10 years out. And especially if you're um, a capitalist building a factory or something like that, you need to know what your cash flow is going to be um, in, in a time frame that matches the loans that you took on in order to build the factory. Well, if you can't make that assumption, you know, if you can't know what the world's going to be like five years from now, why would you build that factory? And so in times of uncertainty, you see a lot less fixed investment in the world and then a lot less productive capacity being added in the future and growth slows down. And we're, you know, we're kind of seeing that in the U.S already with manufacturing kind of plateauing mm -hmm. and stock buybacks through the roof. Well, companies would much rather put their money towards buying back their own stock because that's a guaranteed event for them. They can predict with certainty what's going to happen when they buy back their stock, you know, and, and, but on the other hand, if they uh, ramp up CapEx 
and start building factories. Uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty in that process because they don't know what their markets are going to be like when that factory has been operating for five or 10 years and still has debt that needs to pay off. Oh, yeah. So, so we're seeing this play yeah. out now, you know, where, where they're, they're taking the safe way out, mm -hmm. um, doing financial engineering and doing very little actual physical work um, in terms of expanding their capacity. Absolutely. You got that right. And you're right. We're in interesting times and we're going to have to sit back and see how this thing unfolds. I don't think anybody can predict it with any accuracy, but uh, obviously limited choices, but they keep coming up with new choices, which are just variations of the old choice. Well, what's going to happen next? We don't know, but stay tuned. Check out John's site, dollarcollapse.com read these articles really important check out financial survival network.com we always carry john's articles as well as a host of other authors who seem to have a good insight in what's going on and don't forget our webinar is scheduled for november 5th 9 p.m eastern time entitled how to pay off your mortgage in five to seven years without really trying it works it's pure math you just have to get the right technique john we will talk to you next week thanks gary talk to you then fsn radio it's all about what's next go to financialsurvivalnetwork.com and sign up for your free weekly newsletter you'll also get three free reports the financial survival network it's all about what's next Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.